0: Caution! The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa.
1: And I'm Allison.
0: And this week, yet again, we come in hot with a composer... we were sure we had talked about before, and indeed, many mentions of him in our podcast scripts, but never a full (laughs) episode, we're really not sure how this one managed to slip through the cracks.
1: Such a clerical error on our part, we are so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) As though we're keeping post-track like that. (laughs) Right. But anyway, as you can tell by the title, probably, it is Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, and we'll be looking at one of his most famous pieces in perhaps one of the most famous pieces of classical music ever, which is The Flight of the Bumblebee.
0: Rimsky Korsakov was born in a small town outside of St. Petersburg in 1844. His parents both participated in musical activities, but they were not professionals. However, their love of music rubbed off on little Nikolai, and he soon showed musical talents as well, so he was allowed to take lessons.
1: However, he didn't immediately feel a strong urge to pursue music as a full-time job, but rather just a fun side hobby. Instead, he decided to join the Russian Navy. At this time, he traveled the world, and he actually got to travel not only around Europe, but also North and South America. Fortuitously, while he was undergoing his naval training, he also became acquainted with Miley Balakarev, who was the leader of the mighty handful which, of course, is the first major Russian classical music group, and we have definitely talked about them before in several episodes. And Balakirev helped Rimsky-Korsakov discover a love of Russian folk tunes. While Rimsky-Korsakov was out and about on his travels, he spent time writing a whole Russian-style symphony that was premiered in 1865 while he was still in the Navy he continued to write fairly large-scale works while working as a naval officer, including his first opera, Sadko, which premiered in 1867.
0: So we must remember that comparatively, and especially in relation to his peers, Rinsky Korsakov was at this point still relatively untrained, and by all accounts, an amateur. And for a relatively untrained amateur, his music was really good and very well-received. So good, in fact, that in 1871, he was offered a position of professor of composition in the St. Petersburg Conservatory, which he accepted with Balakarev's encouragement. However, this is where his inexperience kind of reared its ugly head, and he was in way over his head. (laughs) Having never been to music school himself, he felt underqualified for the job. Essentially, he was teaching himself the lessons just a few weeks before he had to teach them to the students.
1: Talk about a stressful position. Indeed. At this point, though the Mighty Five wanted to reject Western music rules, Rimsky-Korsakov still had to learn and teach these rules, or else how could they be broken? And in the end, his style actually ended up changing for having gained this knowledge of the Western traditions.
0: He also found himself taking on the role of an editor or arranger. There are several examples of him and his students working together to complete the works of deceased Russian composers. One of the most well-known of these completions is his orchestration of pictures at an exhibition that was left incomplete by his dear friend Modest Mussorgsky when he passed. Now, this arranging was a bit of a double-edged sword because at the time, Rimsky-Korsakov had the noble cause of making Russian music more accessible to all audiences, both domestic and abroad. So he took some artistic liberties that may have ended up making things sound a bit more Western than they were originally intended. Although this did the trick and a lot of his arranged works are now well-loved, recently, historians are looking to more original scores, to try to interpret things with the more intended, quote, rough Russian style.
1: As we mentioned, Rimsky-Korsakov's own style was a bit more, quote, Western-inspired than many of the other Mighty Five. One of his well-known pieces that is more Western is the Capriccio Espagnol. Apparently, Tchaikovsky, who also wrote in a more Western tradition, wrote to Rimsky-Korsakov after hearing the piece and had nothing but praise for it. Rimsky-Korsakov also took on more Russian themes though. A famous piece of course is the Russian Easter Overture, which is a very powerful take on the Russian Orthodox Church music. And he also took on more mystical and fairy tale style pieces with operas such as Scheherazade, which we may look into in the future, and also The Snow Maiden, which is based on a Russian fairy tale. In
0: 1905, Rimsky-Korsakov was caught up in the Russian Revolution, and was dismissed from the conservatory for expressing anti-monarchy views. However, with his firing, almost 300 students and several additional staff members all quit the conservatory in a show of solidarity for Rimsky-Korsakov, and he was subsequently reinstated to his post. He remained at the conservatory until his death in 1908. He passed from progressive heart disease, and he's buried in the Alexander Nevsky Monastery, surrounded by other members of the Mighty Five and their students.
1: And so now on to this week's musical feature, The Flight of the Bumblebee. This is actually not a standalone work, as you may have thought. It's actually from a much bigger work, which is the opera, The Tale of Tsar Saltan. The plot for the opera is a bit difficult to follow, as most of them are, and some critics point out that the plot really is not the strong suit of this work, but rather the music and the spectacle of it all is what makes it a great performance. It's the Tsarist
0: Russian equivalent of an action flick.
1: Yeah, (laughs) just lots of big things happening. Lots of
0: spectacle. (laughs) It's the, like the recent Marvel movies, not much substance. Anyways, that might not hot make any takes, a few friends. Hot
2: takes. All
0: right, well let's <laughs> let's take a crack at this plot, shall we? Because it starts out with three sisters discussing about what they would do to marry the Tsar Sultan. The first would make him delicious meals. The second would weave him glorious fabric, and the third would bear the Tsar's son. Now, little did the sisters know that the Tsar had been walking by and heard them. And so he hired the first two sisters to work for him and did marry the third. So, the now Tsarina is to have a child, but before he is born, the Tsar is called away to war. After the son is born, the two older sisters create a plot to send a letter to the Tsar that the son is not a human, but rather a terrible monster. Somehow, the Tsar believes this and orders the son and his wife to be put in a barrel and thrown to sea. Oh, no. As you do when your woman does not bear you a son. I'm glad I don't live in the (laughs) 1800s. It's a terrible
1: monster. He can't be allowed to live. (laughs) Miraculously, they actually survive and wash up on a shore of a deserted island, where the son then grows into the young prince. One day, he looks up to see a swan being attacked by a larger bird, which he then kills. The swan comes to thank him and asks how to repay the debt. He expresses that he wishes to see his father, the Tsar, and show him that he is not in fact a monster. So the swan transforms the prince into a bumblebee so that he may swiftly fly across the ocean to his father's ship. And this, of course, is where the flight of the bumblebee song, or interlude, comes in.
0: Now, I don't know much about bumblebees, but I didn't think that they had transoceanic range.
1: Well maybe a more apt bug to be transformed into would be the monarch <laughs> butterfly they ah. travel the world
0: but flight of the monarch butterfly, oh flight of the monarch butterfly does kind of have a ring to it
1: you know monarch monarchy
0: kind of goes together it does
1: but czar almost sounds like buzz buzz Say czar.
0: What? Czar. what a bizarre <laughs> story
1: But it's not Uh, over yet.
0: Because from there, there are many miracles. Somehow a squirrel is found that finds emeralds and acorns. I wish those were the ones in my backyard. The (laughs) war is won, and the swan transforms into a princess for the prince to marry, and everyone is reunited and lives happily ever after. Of course. So the plot's really less about the namesake of Tsar Sultan, but, you know, who's counting? Whatever. (laughs)
1: Again, not really important what the plot is. We just want the showy spectacle of it all. Exactly. And so now on to the actual piece. And please note we are using an arrangement for string orchestra as the original was written for full orchestra with winds. As
0: far as the music goes, this is obviously meant to imitate the buzzing of a bee. If you've had any buzzing insect fly past your ears, it's a little constant drone that seems highly susceptible to Doppler effect. And Rimsky-Korsakov imitates this with slurred chromatic scale in the strings that has mixes of downward sequences and down
1: and back up. this super fast melody, the remaining strings have harmonic movement, but it's very sparse with just little eighth notes on the downbeats. So for some harmonic analysis, strap in for the theory, we start in the key of A minor here. The first measure of the melody features a tonic chord, of course. That next measure then repeats the tonic chord on beat 1, moves to the subdominant, which is the 4th, or in this case D major, on beat 2, and then is back to tonic on beat 1 of the next measure. And this repeats one more time.
0: But then we've changed it up slightly. We have tonic on the downbeat, of course, but then just stepwise motion up to a minor 4 chord instead of the major 4 we've just been working with before moving back to the tonic on beat 2 this time and continuing to move downward to a G-sharp diminished chord, which is not in the key of A minor, but that's fine, (laughs) because it's really just a chromatic downward movement in all voices to A minor again, but in a different inversion. This pattern moves up and down one more time as well before we get a major A7 chord that modulates us into the subdominant, D major.
1: Oh no, it's not wrong to modulate to the fourth, it's just more common to start out modulating to the fifth, or the dominant, as you've heard us say so many other times in the past. In the original version of this piece, the melody would bounce around from the first violin to the flute, but here, of course, the strings just push right on through. And there's also a bit more decoration that's added into the background harmonies rather than just the original eighth note downbeats as we move along.
0: Regardless, the next section features the strings playing sixteenth notes first in unison on A, then moving out in contrary motion to Bumble B-flat and G-sharp, resolving the dissonance back into unison
1: as the piece moves on there's a new and slightly slower motif that is tossed around and that is arpeggiated eighth notes that get passed around the orchestra And though these are not 16th notes, or chromatic for that matter, they still fit with the overall tone of the first motif thanks to the down and back up motion that mimics that chromatic line. Now the piece, of
0: course, barrels on with the ever-present 16th notes. To change it up and add to the intensity, the chromatic lines take a longer journey upward, so this next iteration of the bumblebee motif is played an octave higher than before. Also the harmonic line changes the rhythm up a bit here, it's a bit more jazzy. Instead of just playing on the downbeats, we now have a chord on beat one, then a little sixteenth note pickup to the next measure. I think it's a fun little change.
1: this is just repeated 16th note runs, there can still be a coda! It is differentiated from the original motif as it features more of those long running lines rather than the short sequences, and each of these patterns tries to land on Tonic. And then in the final phrase of the piece, the chromatic line hurtles down into a low register while the harmony plays a few different inversions of the tonic chord over and over again.
0: Now it's not a very dramatic ending, but it doesn't really need to be, because after all, we're just in the middle of the opera now. And if you think about it, the young bumblebee prince is flying away to the next big thing. So it should end somewhat anticipatory, I would say.
1: I agree with that. Excellent thematic analysis.
0: That is what I'm here for.
1: And listener, if what you're here for is learning more about music and history and listening to us say silly things, then you're in the right place and maybe your friends want to be in this place too so invite them over and i I was gonna say like have a listening party but that sounds kind of silly
0: invite them over to the coffee house
1: (laughs) yeah yeah take a trip to the coffee house indeed and of
0: course as always do feel free to leave us reviews on itunes spotify google play wherever wherever it is that you get and review fine podcasts and until next time here on the coffee house i'm still asa
1: And I have always been Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Flight of the Bumblebee was performed by the U.S. Army Band Strings. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.